You join with me in prayer. Father in heaven, as your word is now proclaimed and announced and heralded as the good news that it is, Lord, I pray that you would um, keep me faithful to your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, to hear your word proclaimed as the voice of our good shepherd. Lord, we know that this would be a miracle. And Lord, we know that you have sent your son and appointed people to salvation. Then Christ died for those people. And we also know then the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to go gather the people purchased by Christ's blood and to hold them and to keep them. And so we pray that your Spirit would do this work as we hear your word now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get started, I want to ask you to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9, and you can um, just keep that open or keep, uh, keep a bookmark in there for the entire sermon. But before we get started with 1 Samuel 9, I'm going to ask you a, a question. I want to ask what it would look like if God gave you exactly what your heart desired. What would your life look like if God gave you what your heart desired perhaps when you were younger? Now, for those of you who now know the Lord, who have been redeemed by Christ and trusted in Him and repented of sin, I want you to consider what your life would look like if God searched your heart before you were saved particularly, and instead of saving you from your heart's desire— if he handed over, handed you over and gave you in fullness, just handed you and gave you to your heart's desire and said, to your heart's desire, say, you can have him or you can have her. So last week, Pastor Jordan walked us through the previous chapters of Israel's history when their heart's desire was to have a human king instead of having the Lord as their king. Shockingly, God's response to this incredibly sinful desire welling up from the hearts of Israel, shockingly, God's response to Samuel the prophet was to give them a king, give them what their hearts desired. Today, we're going to hear from the Lord about how their heart's desire was deeper than simply just having a human king. The Lord reveals much about the state of their hearts through his actions in Israel's history, and he will reveal the same things about our hearts through these events in Israel's history because we all come from the same lump of clay. We all come from Adam. We're going to look first at our first point here, point here and I, I want to, I, want, I hope you can see this with me as well as we read it, but the first point is this, that the Lord sees the desires of Israel's hearts. In fact, as you're reading here, there's a lot of plays on words in relation to the word seeing. A prophet is called a seer, but God sees the desires of Israel's hearts. So details in Scripture are very rarely unimportant especially when they're talking about the Lord himself choosing ways to describe a man. You can describe a man in many different ways. 
The things that the Lord wants you to know are most important about this man in particular in this story. And so we're going to see what it was about Saul, the first king of Israel. What was it about Saul which made him the perfect choice to represent the desires of Israel's hearts? Let's read together 1 Samuel 9, and we're going to read the first few verses. 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zerah, son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, He was taller than any of the people. Stop there for a second. Saul was a man of wealth. His father was a man of wealth. Saul himself was strong and tall. Saul was also very handsome. In fact, it says the most handsome in all of Israel. This is the beginning of a Disney story, isn't it? Since the Lord was responding to Israel's heart's desires, and since he sees their hearts, we're going to see that word come up quite a bit, this tells us what Israel longed for the most, what had enslaved their hearts, what they valued, what they wanted in a king, what they thought was worthy of their devotion, what they wanted to give their hearts to. If God could provide you with a king which represented, who, who represented exactly what your heart treasured most or wanted most of yourself or for yourself, what would that king look like? Some cultures value intellectual ability. They want that to be praised above all things. Some value wealth. Some value beauty. Some value power. And then these cultures tend to look down on the other choices of other cultures for what they value. You're dumb for valuing beauty. You you should value intellectual ability. You're dumb for valuing humility. You should value pride. All these things, we look down on each other for these. And none of those things, wealth or beauty or strength, none of those things are bad things. In fact, Beauty is a gift from God, and so are provisions he gives like food and shelter and money and clothing. Strength as well is also a gift from God. It was created by God to be a benefit. The problem is that when we all fell together with Adam, our first father, we inherited hearts that turned to these things, and we turned these things into idols, rather than opportunities to praise and thank and delight in the Lord who made them and gave them to us. We give our hearts to these things rather than the God who made these things. We see them as more important to us than the God who made us and sustains us. In Romans 1, Paul is outlining an indictment against all of humanity, both irreligious and religious, people who know the word of God and people who don't know the word of God. He's giving this indictment. And in Romans 1, Paul summarizes this as the exchanging the glory of God and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. 
That's how he summarizes this impulse of the heart of man. And so the first king which God gives Israel revealed that this was not only true of the nations around them, the pagan nations, is also true of the people of Israel, the covenant people of God, whom the Lord graciously chose out of all the earth to redeem, to be the apple of his eye, to make a covenant with them, the covenant which he actually invented marriage to be a parable of. Like the people of the nations around them, their heart's desire was not set on God, but on human strength, human beauty, human wealth. So this is evidence of sin. This describes a sinful heart which is in rebellion against God, which is condemned for breaking the great commandment, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That brings us to our second point. The Lord gives Israel over to their own desires. And what we'll see in this next portion of Israel's history is that God is actively involved in giving Israel the king which represents her heart's desire. It was no accident. It's God who gives them this king. God isn't sitting back and hoping they pick the right king. Notice the providence of God, how he steers Saul, we're going to see this, how he steers, he steers Saul to Samuel, who is the king anointer. We've seen that he's already the king anointer. And he steers Saul to Samuel without knowing where he was going and why he was even there. Notice also how the Lord speaks through Samuel, who he has already clearly established as a prophet. God is making this choice. He sees Israel's hearts, and he sees the king's heart who would also best represent them. And he intends to hand Israel over to this king. And in so doing, he's handing them over to their own desires. Let's read, continuing on in verse 3 of 1 Samuel 9. Now, the donkeys of Kish, we've already been introduced to rich man Kish and his son Saul. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalem, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let's go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to the servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. 
as they went up the hill of the city, they, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Immediately those who are invited will eat. Or sorry, after those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I've seen my people, notice that, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw the Lord, saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered, Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let, I will let you, I, sorry, I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of, Is of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. And we'll stop there for a moment. I want you to see that Saul is a man in lowly circumstance, and we put that in quotation marks, because he is very wealthy and strong and handsome. But he is of the least tribe and the least clan of the least tribe. He is the man in lowly circumstances who is exalted. But he is just the type of lowly man that Israel would have wanted to be exalted, right? We have this lowly being exalted. Israel sees that, would have seen this, and they would have, he would have been the kind of man that God that they would have wanted God to exalt, to lift up out of his lowly circumstances. And I wonder if you notice the words of God through Samuel in verse 20. All that is desirable in Israel is now for Saul and his father's house. See, in making Israel a kingdom, rather than a nation, 
only that was served and led by and redeemed by judges. Now as a kingdom, they're shaped in such a way that they can belong to a king. They are his possession. In a way, they belong to him. That wasn't true of the judges. You couldn't say that the people belonged to the judge, but it is now true. And Saul was chosen. He was elected to be the king of Israel. It was not his idea. It was not his choice. We'll see, and we'll again see soon, how God made this very clear that it was his sovereign choice to choose Saul. We've already seen this. He made it happen. These circumstances were directly chosen to make Saul the man chosen. But Saul was not the only election which God made, though. Israel. Israel had been told over and over again that God had sovereignly elected her. She was nothing. And God promised to make her great. Saul was of the most obscure tribe, one which had been almost eliminated a few generations earlier. And he was also from the least important clan of that tribe. We saw that in verse 21. One of Israel's great and recurring sins was that she was always tempted to look at something within herself to try to explain why it was that God had chosen her and not Egypt and not Philistia. Why was it that God had chosen her? Yes, she came from nothing. But there must have been something special about her. Beauty, strength, wealth hidden inside of her. Maybe it was that God saw these things in her which were, were, was hidden better than the other nations. That's why God chose her to be his prized possession, to redeem her and establish an everlasting covenant with her. And I want to be very clear, and God does this very clearly throughout all of the Old Testament and the New. God considers this speculation among the worst sins which Israel ever committed looking for something within herself to explain why God chose her. It is a gross sin in the eyes of God. Over and again, he says, his election of Israel was of pure grace. We sang a number of songs celebrating the grace of God today. It means undeserved, uncalled for. No reason to be found in us why God saved us. There was no diamond in the rough that God found in Israel. There was no seed of greatness that God recognized and then made great. No, Israel was not beautiful. In theological and moral terms, she was ugly. God didn't choose her because she was beautiful, but he chose her and therefore chose to make her beautiful. So God's election of Saul was exposing this sinful heart of Israel. This, there must be some reason why God chose us. 
And in doing so, he was handing her over to this sin so she could see how bad of a master that sin was. And Israel's heart is no different than yours and mine are naturally. Even after becoming God's people, even after we come to faith and experience redemption, we tend to wrestle with the question of why is it that God chose me? Why am I saved? Why did God elect me? What was it about me? Now Saul's throne will be ripped away from his family by God. He was not the man whom the Lord would ultimately give his people over to. That would be the son of David, whom his people would ultimately be given over to. But in handing Israel over for a time to that sin of their hearts, to Saul, for a time God exposes and condemns that sin for them, but also for our benefit. God does not choose the beautiful or wealthy or the strong. He does not see some spark of greatness within you. He doesn't see the wonder within you and see what you'd become if only you had a chance. He didn't see the strength of your faith and therefore choose you. He didn't see the beauty of the good works that you would do if only he chose you to save you. He didn't see the fact that you'd believe and endure. What he saw is that you were just like all those heading for destruction, whose hearts powerfully loved sin instead of God, and that you were dead in your sin, and that your sin was a stench. But for his own glory, and as an act of pure grace, he chose you and gave you to his son before the world was created. He gave you to Christ to redeem and to keep the law of God on your behalf, to cover you with his perfect, beautiful robes of righteousness, and to take your filthy, ugly rags of sin and be punished instead of you while wearing them on the cross, to die in your place and to be raised from the dead after three days and then to ascend into heaven 40 days later and then to send his spirit to chase you down and find you and send a preacher to preach to your ears. And maybe it was your mom or your dad or your cousin or an enemy or a neighbor or some other way which he planned to chase you down with his word and his spirit and then to overcome your death and the ugliness and the ugly strength of your heart's hatred against him. He sent your, his spirit sent by the Father and Son to make you alive, to give you faith in Christ, so that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing, so that no man may boast. Pelagius, an early teacher, an early false teacher of the 4th century, had an assessment of humans which disagreed with the lessons that we are now learning in 1 Samuel the lessons which God teaches us through Israel's first two kings. You are not dead in sin, said Pelagius. And those who end up Christians are those and, and who have lives that honor God. It's due to strength within us. A strength which is helped by the example and encouragement of Christ. Pelagius was rightly identified immediately as a false teacher who denied the gospel. 
in the Reformation of the 1500s, the church was rescued from another false gospel. One that taught you were saved by faith and your own works. And the church rightly identified that that is no gospel at all. But shortly after the church was rescued from that false teaching, a Dutch man named Jacob Arminius resurrected the heresy of Pelagius from the pit. Now, he added a twist, making it sound a little better, but in doing so, he made it much more like the heresy that Israel perpetually struggled with for her whole existence. It actually sounded more like that heresy that Israel always wrestled with. God chooses chooses to lift sinners up from the ground. Yes, to exalt from the ground from hell, said Arminius. However, he makes his choice based on something that he sees within those people. Something in the future. He sees that they will respond, that their faith will be real, and that it would produce the beauty of repentance. And he taught these things in secret, deceiving those churches who had asked them to teach their young preachers. And when it was finally exposed, the word of God, the entire word of God, was soon brought to bear to rescue the church from this false teaching and to plead again with the church to trust in the grace alone of God, to trust that there was nothing about herself as the reason why God had chose to redeem her. Brothers and sisters, you will see as we work through the book of 1 Samuel that this is not how God elects. It's not how God chooses those whom he will redeem. There's nothing which he saw in us which caused him to set his affection and love upon us and redeem us. Election is of pure grace. And in being handed over to Saul to experience Saul's kingship and rejection by God, Israel experiences the tyranny of the results of that sinful way of thinking. God hands them over to it for a while that they may know how bad it is. I want us also to see that God curses man by handing him over to his desires. We talk about God cursing people because of sin. How does he do that? He does that primarily by handing man over to man's desires. This is characteristic of the Lord's dealing with sinful man. We see that he hands man over to be ruled by the things that his heart desires. Rather than restraining those desires, he says, let it, I'll let you have them. I'll let those desires actually have you. And he does it to demonstrate and put on display the wickedness of that desire. That desire was not just a potential evil, but it's an evil itself. It's not just some bad thing that that you did wrong. It's actually a terrible taskmaster. You don't know what you want when you want sin. He does it to show that our sinful desire for his good things is a terrible master and that belonging to him is far sweeter far sweeter than to be ruled by our heart's desire. Adam and Eve were tempted by the desire to come out from underneath God's reign. You remember this. They thought maybe it would be, our heart's desire is to be out from underneath God's reign. And God handed them over to that desire. 
From that moment, the world of pain and sin and death and sufferings and earthquakes and tornadoes and viruses and tyrants and cancer and dementia and car accidents have been the result of God giving Adam and Eve and their offspring, giving us over to this desire. In Romans 1, I referenced this earlier, as Paul continues, as we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship the creature rather than the creator, Paul continues to describe what happens when sin turns our hearts away from God and toward rebellion. God does the worst thing possible for us. He gives us over to our own heart's desire. You want to serve sin? I will let you experience the fullness of sin's dominion, of sin's reign, of sin's enslavement. And this curse ought to be permanent, and for many it will be. But it is time for another but God. This will ultimately lead to the destruction and death and damnation of sinners. However, God will only temporarily have his covenant people handed over to their heart's desires. He will use it to discipline them as a father rather than punishing them as his enemies. He does this so that we might see the wickedness of our sins, sinful desires and so that we might run to that enslavement and run to our Redeemer and to long to be given to Him. Don't give us to sin. Give us to Christ. That's why He hands His elect, His covenant people over to sin. That we might long to belong to Him rather than those things which our hearts naturally long for. God uses even the curse of sin to ultimately bring redemption to his covenant people, chosen by grace and grace alone. That brings us to our third point, which is the Lord gives a redeemer to his people. This handing over of his people to the reign of their corrupt heart's desire, it was ultimately part of his plan to bring them redemption. Let's continue reading. Let's continue reading. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign that to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin by Zelza. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you were sent to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you. Saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats and another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, tambourine flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal and be 
Behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a, and a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among, also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought, uh, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. We'll stop there. We've seen what it was in Israel that sparked her request. It was her sinful heart's desires. But we also get to see God's intention in granting the request, and that was to bring Israel redemption. What Israel meant for evil, God intended for good. God saw Israel's heart better than she did. He picked a better representative of her heart's desire than she could have. He gives Israel over to this king. And now we see that God sees something else. He sees her need of redemption. And, Saul, and Israel is not simply given to Saul. He is given to her. Israel's intention for demanding a king was a sinful one, but God's intention for her is a good one for her redemption. He said that this king will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. God promised his people thousands of years earlier, right after the fall into sin, remember we've noticed this a few times in these series, immediately after the fall into sin, God promised to bring his people a son who would bring them redemption. He would give them a kinsman redeemer. And through this turn in Israel's history, Israel was taught to hold, to hope not only in a kinsman redeemer, but in a royal kinsman redeemer whom they would be given over to 
for him to save them, to willingly redeem them. And Saul's clearly not that man because he's far from willing. He didn't tell his uncle when his uncle asked what the prophet said. He withheld that information. And then he hid in the baggage when he was supposed to be given over to the people as their redeemer. He hid in the baggage. But yet the Lord will bring them redemption, even through Saul. He will bring them redemption from the Philistines. What man intended for evil, God intends for the good of his dearly beloved people. And we'll see as we continue through the book of 1 Samuel that God will work great redemptions for his people from the hand of her enemies. And not because she was beautiful or strong or wealthy. Not because she was right and holy in demanding a human king. But in spite of those things, he loved her and brings her a royal redeemer to save her from her distress. That brings us to our fourth point. The Lord uses the sinful intentions of man to fulfill his holy intentions to make his people into a redeemed kingdom. Let's continue on beginning at verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up and laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. I'll stop there. God is not merely going to hand his people over to Saul as Saul's possession completely. It's only a partial and temporary handing over. Now, it's temporary because we know the end of the story. We know that the throne will be ripped away by God from Saul's house and it will be given instead to David. So it's a temporary handing over. And it's merely partial because God remains their king. We see this through the fact that Saul's reign was placed under the reign of God, under the word of God. We see that, right? He has the rights and duties of the kingship. We're read in front of the people. The Lord is not giving up his kingship and reign over his people. He never does. He never will. Even when he hands them over to the reign of their heart's desire to be chastened and warned and disciplined and taught by their heart's desires and the slavery that comes with it. God's plan has always been to turn his people into a kingdom, which would be saved by being handed over to a royal kinsman redeemer, a Messiah, a Christ of the Lord's choosing. In Genesis already, this kingdom and reign was already prophesied. Hundreds of years before Israel was a kingdom. Again, in the book of Numbers, it was also prophesied. And Saul was the perfect choice to represent the desires of the people, what they would have wanted to worship, what they wanted, want, would have wanted to be given over to. But one day, God would hand them over to the reign of a king who was the perfect choice to represent God's desires for his people. A total redemption, which was worked by completely undeserved love. That king would not be from the line of Saul, which represented the slavery of the desires of our hearts. Slavery to things like beauty and wealth and power. No, 
That king is Jesus, and he comes from the line and throne of David. There could be nothing worse than being handed over, to be given over to the desires of your sinful heart, for God to just let you have your heart's desire, to give you over to what your heart naturally wants, to be possessed by it. But there could be nothing better than to be handed over to be given to Christ as his possession. Show me a king lifted up who perfectly represents who I am deep down. Show me this king when he is lifted up, set in front of everybody, lifted up, who represents who I am deep down. Israel would have chosen Saul for that. Tall, handsome, wealthy, strong. But God picked Jesus, son of God, son of David, lifted up on the cross, as sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake he made him to be, no, who, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ became our perfect representative, though he was perfect. God placed on him our sin so that he could redeem us from it by being punished and cursed by God in our place and then die and save us from the power of death by rising from the dead on the third day, that we might become the righteousness of God, to be clothed not in our own righteousness, but in God's own righteousness. He didn't choose us because we were beautiful, but to make us beautiful, clothed in his record, his obedience, his righteousness, rather than being crushed for the ugliness of the filthy rags of our sin. Now Paul goes on in Galatians to describe what it looked like to have a royal kinsman redeemer who perfectly represented us, hanging, lifted up for all to see. We already see in 2 Corinthians 5 that it is sin, a man lifted up to represent us perfectly. Sin. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by Becoming a curse for us, as it is written. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Not beautiful, not in strength, not in wealth, a curse. Hundreds of years before Christ came through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord told us that there would be nothing beautiful or special about the Redeemer, the royal kinsman Redeemer, which he would give. He would not be beautiful. He would not be superhero, strong and muscular. He would be cursed. There's nothing worse than to be handed over to your own heart's desires, but there is nothing better than to be given to Christ, to belong to him, to be owned by him, to be his possession, his slave even. John 10, 27 my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Why? And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Brothers and sisters, some of you are playing with sin, chasing after sinful desires 
even treasuring a desire for sinful things instead of repenting and running from that desire. God might discipline you by giving you exactly what you want. By giving you over to that sin. By making you a full-on slave to it. And sin is no good master. And through that pain, you will see that Christ is a much sweeter master. So run to him. Brothers and sisters, some of you look on the world with pride. Arrogantly looking at the foolish things which the world has been taken over by. Yes, there is nonsense which our world and culture has embraced and given themselves over to, and it has been on full display in these last few months, full display of being handed over to the slavery of sinful thoughts. But do not think for a moment that there is something special about you which has prevented you from being handed over to those irrational and foolish ideas as well. You were not smarter or stronger. It was by God's grace that he spared you. Yes, notice the foolishness and sin of the world and rejoice in the wisdom of God and rejoice that he has rescued you from it. But do not look at your life and take pride in who you are or God will show you just how sinful and foolish you are by handing you over to that sin. Brothers and sisters, some of you are currently feeling the weight of your sin. And you look at yourself and you see no beauty, no reason for God to keep his precious promises to you. You see your sin. You see the way he's failed you. And it to you is a stench. It is a gross garment. No reason in you for God to redeem you. And you are wondering if Christ has indeed become your rescuer and your redeemer. Why would he choose me? And I will say very firmly that the answer to that despair and depression is not by hearing God tell you that you are worthy of saving. That there is something beautiful in you which caused him to go to the cross for you. That would only be true if Christ inherited Saul's throne. He didn't. That is a salt water solution to thirst because you will soon yet again be made aware of your sin and your ugliness and be thrown yet again into despairing of God's love. So dear brother and sister, rejoice that Christ did not inherit the throne of Saul but of David. Israel for centuries rejoiced that she was, not, that she was only handed temporarily and partially over to the throne of Saul but that the throne of David would endure forever. She rejoiced that God did not hand her over to the sinful desires forever, but only for a time. That he handed her over to his heart's desire, not temporarily and not partially, but forever. So Israel was taught to rejoice that she was not chosen for anything about her, but because God had God's purely undeserved, unfailing, perfect love. So lift up your head, Christian, weighed down with your guilt. Christ has taken your ugliness and has taken it to the grave. And he has clothed you with his righteous robes. 
because you were given to him by his father. And he will certainly do this, not because you are worthy, but because the father is worthy. And the father gave you over to him to reign and to possess and to redeem. There is no greater comfort than to belong both in body and soul and life and death, not to my own heart, not to Saul, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So rejoice, O weary brother, doubting your salvation, doubting God's love and commitment to exalt and redeem you from this world of suffering. He does not exalt the strong or the beautiful or the wealthy, but the poor and the ugly and the weak. And so if you can see your poverty and weakness, rejoice. That is his work in you to see that. And delight in your willing, royal, kinsman, redeemer. And run from sin's slavery into his mighty arms. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do not fully and finally give your people over to our heart's desires. Though we often pray for it even and want it and long for it and chase after them, Lord, you have instead given us over permanently and fully to the desires of your heart and to the possession of your son, Jesus. Let us see how sweet it is to not belong to ourselves in our heart's desires, but to Christ. I pray that we would walk as your children, not as slaves to sin, but as slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ, children of Christ, friends of Christ, brothers of Christ, sisters of Christ, that we would love belonging to him. I pray that you would work this in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.